Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Good to see you. Oh. How's this? You hear me? I know a number of people just uh, arrived over the weekend, so um, yeah, I see some new faces. I was away this weekend. It's nice to see some fresh blood, no, fresh minds. And uh, those who have been sitting, you've been, they've been warming up the place for you, and those who are coming in uh, just bring a, a freshness uh, to the practice. So I hope that everyone... I know that everyone can benefit from practicing together, um, no matter how long you've been here. Uh, I want to start the talk by reading a passage that perhaps you're familiar with. It's, uh, it's a very famous passage. It's the one that really hooked me into the Dharma. Once I heard it, I said, okay, I can go for this. And this is a, a translation, one translation that I particularly like. And this is the, uh, the Buddha's um, speaking to the Kalamas, the Kalama clan, who had many teachers and uh, uh, wise people moving through and, and sharing their version of the truth, and each one often proclaiming that their version is the right one. And then the Buddha comes in and He's saying this is the true Dharma, and they say, how do we know who to believe? And his response, he said, we're filled with doubt and uncertainty. It is indeed fitting Kalamas to be uncertain. It is, it is fitting to doubt, for in situations of uncertainty, doubts surely arise. You should decide what's true, Kalamas, not by what you've heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely and certainly not out of respect for a teacher. But when you would know, Kalamas, for yourselves, that these things are unhealthy, these things when entered upon and undertaken incline towards harm and suffering, then Kalamas, you should reject them. And when you know for yourselves, these things are healthy, these things when entered upon and undertaken incline toward welfare and happiness, then Kalamas having come to them, you should stay with them. Who do, we, who do we listen to? How do we know what the true Dharma is? There's so many different approaches to practice, so many different instructions that you might hear, whether it's different teachers or maybe even out of the same teacher's mouth can say different things at different times. At Spirit Rock, we and, and here at, at IMS, the retreat center, often uh, retreats are usually done in team, 
teaching, four or five teachers, and uh, they all seem to know the truth. But if you speak to one and another and another on any particular issue, you might get different responses. And sometimes it can get confusing. Sometimes I've heard instructions that are really inspiring along the lines of the famous line, practice like your hair is on fire. That will get you going. We have no time to waste. We're like children in the attic of a house which is burning down. Don't waste this precious opportunity. Or heroic effort. Abandon all concern for the body. One of my teachers, I remember saying that was a line that kind of caught my ear. Abandon all concern for the body. Basically, the the idea, if your leg is falling off, just note it falling off, falling off, falling off. And I, I know that practicing that way can be really powerful. I, I've done that, and I practice like that. The one thing, one important thing it's, it's good to keep in mind is you have to have a kind of lightness as you do that, and they don't always say that. But, but that's one approach to practice. Then there's another approach, which is, as Joseph's teacher and the teacher of mine, Menindri would, Menindriji, would say, simple and easy Just settle back and rest in the moment. Empty phenomena rolling on. Or uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. This is, uh, if I can find it, um, a Tibetan teaching that I love. A lot of things here. I'm not going to be using all of these, but it's just nice to have them at my disposal. And I know uh, here it is. I just kind of pick from the menu and see what's coming up. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. Whatever arises in the mind has no reality whatsoever. Let the game happen on its own, springing up and falling back without changing anything, and all will vanish and reappear without end. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. Sounds good, huh? I mean, that's a guy you'd like to practice with. Okay. But they tell you this after, um, this is the high Dzogchen teachings that they tell you after you've done some preliminary practices, which include 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 visualizations and mantra recitations. And after you do all that hard work, then they just say, relax, relax, take it easy. But that's very high practice. And you don't have to wait until you do all of those prostrations before you realize that relaxation and ease is a very important component of of doing this work that we're doing together. 
So you have different messages, different instructions, different approaches. How do you know which is right? Even the Buddha had many different suggestions for working with various challenging challenges to practice. You know, it's, he was the, that was his gift, the skillful, the skillful means, the gift of skillful means, 84,000 Dharma doors. And for one person, he'd say, do this kind of practice. For another, he'd say, do this. And even with working with thought, which is where we usually get in trouble, there were a number of different approaches. I used to think when I was first doing, getting into practice, mindfulness just was so amazing to me. I thought it was the answer to everything. Wow, you just have to be mindful. That's it. And if you can be mindful of whatever it is and see it clearly, that is it. It's very freeing, especially if you understand that mindfulness is a, is a kind awareness, is a, a, a spacious, relaxed, but clear, penetrating awareness into the truth of things. But mindfulness isn't always strong enough to be the only answer. And there are a number of different methods that the Buddha shared. And I want to spend the first part of this talk um, with um, his teaching from a discourse that I have found really helpful on uh, the different ways of dealing with distracting thoughts, just in case you happen to have a distracting thought or two. Um, there are five different ways of dealing with disturbing thoughts. This is the, it's Majjhima number 20, if you're not familiar with it, the Vitaka Santana Sutta, the removal of distracting thoughts. And this is for both mindfulness and concentration. Actually, uh, the, the Sutta is, is particularly, I think, addressed when you're trying to concentrate your mind. So those who are doing concentration practices don't, don't rule out and say, oh, no, well, that, that's not for me because I'm not doing mindfulness. This is for both mindfulness and concentration. When it gets really hard and you get snagged by whatever, some other approaches besides simply being mindful or simply going back to the, to the object of your concentration First method, I'll read, a, I'll read some of this sutta because it's so graphic and to the point. It says, uh, when a practitioner is pursuing the higher mind, from time to time one should give attention to one of five signs or five, this is five approaches. What are the five? Here, when a practitioner is giving attention to some thought, and owing to that thought, there arise in, or something, it says some sign, it's a little confusing how many times the word sign is used. Owing to what he's paying attention, there arise in them unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hatred, with delusion. Then one should give attention to some other sign, 
turn your attention someplace else, connected with what is wholesome. When one gives attention to some other sign connected with what is wholesome, then the unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hate, and delusion are abandoned in in them and subside. When abandoning them, his mind becomes steadied, internally quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. And here's the analogy. Each one has an analogy. Just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice might knock out, remove, and extract a coarse peg by means of a fine one, so too, when a practitioner gives attention to some other sign connected with what's wholesome, the mind becomes steadied, internally quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. Okay, what does that mean? You're replacing an unwholesome thought with a wholesome thought. You're reflecting on something that, that brightens up the, the heart and the mind. So, for instance, I'll just ask you, this might be a little, uh, if you're up for it, participation uh, class. Suppose you're having a whole lot of doubt what might you do if the mindfulness isn't strong enough to just be noticing and noting, oh, doubting, doubting. What can you do? Anybody? What might you turn to? To faith. Yeah. All right. To faith. Like last time I talked about faith, you might think about the Buddha or think about somebody who inspires you. Think about your Aunt Harriet who believes in you or somebody who's been so inspirational for who they are. And as that brightens, as you open up to that, it is an antidote to, fa- to doubt. Suppose you are uh, filled with aversion and anger and the mindfulness is not quite strong. What might you turn to then? Anyone else? Huh? Metta. Yeah. So there you are. And you all know this. It's just, I, I just want to name it in the sutta, metta. You know, I hate our person. Oh, may I be happy? May I be? Or you think of somebody else who you really love. Mm, oh yes, and it just softens the heart a little bit. May I be? May you be at ease? May you be filled with, with happiness and peace. Mm. And that just creates enough space that you can hold that aversion. If you have mm, a lot of desire. Any suggestions? If the mindfulness isn't strong enough, one reflection. What's that? Think of a corpse. Okay, that's, that's actually, that's pointing to it. Think of a corpse that is, where is this going to lead to? You know, I'm Lusting for this person, okay, what are they going to look like in 40 years? Oh, maybe even before a corpse. But the, the general reflection is impermanence. This thing that I want so much, is it going to be grabbing me six months from now or a year from now? Or you get your brand new car, yeah, when I get that, I'm going to be happy. And then you kind of get a little nick in it a few months later, and then it's not quite as, you know. Every new car at some point stops being a new car. 
So that's the, the first of the approaches to substitute something wholesome for that unwholesome, troubling thought. Second approach, he realizes that might not do it. Okay. If while giving attention to some other sign connected with what's wholesome, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hate, and delusion, one should examine the danger in those thoughts. Thus, these thoughts are unwholesome. They are, go with the translation, they are reprehensible. Okay? They result in suffering. That's the main thing. These thoughts are unwholesome and result in suffering. When examining the danger in those thoughts, then the unwholesome thoughts are abandoned and subside. And with the abandoning, the mind becomes quiet, etc. Just as a man or a woman, young, youthful, and fond of ornaments, would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around his or her neck, so too... Would a practitioner, when a practitioner examines the danger in those thoughts, the mind becomes steadied, internally quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. What does that mean? Okay. Basically, it's our colloquial phrase, don't go there. Don't even go there. You know, if you have a choice, if you see... You ever use that? How many people use it? Don't even go there, Okay. You know, I mean, whether or not it's in practice in your daily life, I don't need to go that, down that door. You know, I don't need to wear the carcass of a, an animal around my neck. I, I remember on one retreat, I was sitting at IMS. It was a, a three-month course. I think I was sitting the last six weeks. And um, as I mentioned the last time, I'm a, a sports fan, and I used to be when the San Francisco 49ers were a really great team. I was a mild fanatic fan. I had my obsessive moments. I mean, I wasn't alone. It was a really good team. And I made the mistake of, um, before I came to the retreat, looking at the schedule. <laughs> and once I, 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 I can't remember what I did yesterday or the day before, but once I see something, it kind of sticks in my mind. And I knew, you know, November 15th, they'd be in Atlanta at 1 p.m., you know. And my body was just kind of geared up. If, you, if you're a football fan, I'm not as much of a football fan these days. I still like to watch, but it's different. But like by Thursday or Friday, I was kind of gearing up for the game and leading up to those three hours, I'd be kind of like plugged in, what's, and I'd play it, imagine it, and then, and then be, there'd be the post-game, you know, of, oh, God, I hope they won, and that kind of be. And I was, this was crazy, right? By the second week, I said, I've got to figure out how to do, to do something else. This is too much. So I used, I didn't know about this discourse then. But I kind of used it. I put the whole the whole syndrome into one big frame and named it football thoughts. Okay, so there would be you know Thursday, Friday kind kind of coming up, and, 
And I just, football thoughts, football thoughts, like, I don't need to go there. And it was somehow putting a frame around it gave me an option. So for whatever that's worth, it's not football season now, but uh, you might just know, you see, if you're getting caught in, you know, job thoughts or, or relationship thoughts or, you know, Bob thoughts or Joan thoughts or whatever, you know, just name it. That can give you a little bit of space, but might not do the trick. So on the third, if what arises, if while examining the danger, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with, etc., etc., one should forget those thoughts and not give attention to them. When forgetting them and not giving attention, then the unwholesome thoughts are abandoned and subside. With the abandoning, the mind becomes steadied, etc. Just as a man with good eyes who did not want to see forms that had come within range of sight would either shut his eyes or look away, so too a practitioner tries to forget those thoughts and not give attention to them. The mind becomes steadied, quieted, etc. What does that mean? This is what is known as um, the Buddha's instructions on forgetfulness and inattention. The Buddha said sometimes it's very skillful to forget and not pay attention. Particularly forgetting the thing that you're dwelling on and turning your attention elsewhere. Then you might say, well, how is that different from the first one? Isn't that like... The first one is substituting an actual wholesome thought for the unwholesome one. This is turning your attention to somewhere else in your field and seeing, oh, I can look at that too. Say you've got a lot of pain in a particular area. If you keep on focusing because you think, oh, I'm supposed to be with what's most predominant, then you will get very tired, the mind will get contracted, and you'll start to spin out. But if you turn to someplace else where the, mi- the, the body is not hurting, or you might open up to sounds, which are a wonderful object to get some space, oh, yeah, I don't have to just go there. Or if you have a troublesome thought that is really grabbing you, you might just come back to the breath or notice something else in your field of experience that you can turn to. It's like you're not feeding that other troublesome area. Fourth, if while forgetting those thoughts and not giving attention to them, there still arise unwholesome thoughts, then one should give attention to stilling the thought formations of those thoughts. And when doing so, they subside and the mind becomes steadied and quieted. Just as a man walking fast might consider, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? And he would walk slowly. Then he might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And then we'd stand. Then he'd consider, why am I standing? What if I sit? And he'd sit. Then he might consider, why am I sitting? What if I lie down? It's getting better and better, huh? And he would lie down. By doing so, he'd substitute for each grosser posture one that was subtler. And so too, when giving attention to stilling the thought formations of those thoughts, the mind becomes quieter, concentrated. What does that mean? I've seen two interpretations of this. One is the obvious one. Just relax. Lighten up. Get some space. If you're trying so hard, 
just do something that will be will bring some ease. That's one way to still the thought formations. Another way is going to the source of the thought. Where does the thought come from? It comes from nowhere. It just kind of comes and it goes. Okay. Where does thought come from? I used to ask my teachers that when I first got in. You ever, know, you ever try to get to that one? Where does thought come from? Who knows? How did that happen that all of a sudden, you know, you're back in third grade or you're in your relationship at home or you're... It just comes on its own. It's so interesting. But it comes and we believe it and we get identified with it and we snag it. I came across this, this Calvin and Hobbes cartoon... Here it is. Somebody gave me. First frame. Here I am, happy and content. Second frame. But not euphoric. (laughs) Third frame. So now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day is ruined. Fourth. I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. If we could only stop thinking when we're ahead, where do those thoughts come from? We just believe them, though, and they, we take off with them. So this is a fourth one. Just relax, lighten up. Fifth, if while giving attention to stilling the thought formations of those thoughts, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hate, and delusion, then, and this is the one, say, with, mm, with delicacy, okay? Then with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. With teeth clenched, tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one beats down and constrains and crushes mind with mind, then the unwholesome thoughts subside. Uh, just as a strong man seeking sees, might seize a weaker man by head or shoulders too, when with his teeth, oh, and beat him down, constrain him and crush him, so too when with his teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, Practitioner beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind. The mind becomes steadied, internally quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. You have to do this one with, uh, with the right spirit. But probably you know what, or you can get a sense of what this means. You know, the Buddha was a warrior. He was from the Kshatriya class. So there was a fierceness to a lot of the metaphors This is where we say, and the way I see it, it's got to be done with a lot of loving kindness. Enough. Just like a firm, loving parent whose kid is about to run out into the street, grabs the child with all the love in her heart or his heart and says, no, come on back. Or no, you don't put your hand on the stove. Enough. Sometimes we can do that with our minds. And just by sheer um, conviction and alignment with a certain power, we can stop that train of thought. 
It can't be done, I've, at least in my own practice. I haven't seen it be able to be done with hatred and aversion because that just contracts the mind and gets you spinning more. But just to know that is an option, okay? Anybody ever use that firmness? Okay, let's stop. I'm just curious if you use it in your own practice, okay? Yeah, you ha- and there's an art to doing it lovingly. That's the art. So, these different methods, by the way, I'll I'll share with you one other method that's not in this discourse, but that uh, I found very, very helpful. Wait, am I going to... Yeah, I'll just say it right now. Is uh, Joseph's method, Joseph Goldstein's method. If you're really bothered by your thoughts... Just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. Yeah. Because for all intents and purposes, you don't invite those, that thought in. Let's have some rage right now. You know? It just comes. You know? How about some doubt? You know, who knows where it comes from? So if you just don't take it personally and imagine they're coming from who knows where, you just picked up radio waves, then it lightens things up a lot. Okay, so... Back to the main focus of the thought of the of the talk. What's the teaching in all of these different methods? There's no one right way. So if you have the the thought that comes to you as it often comes, am I doing it right? You know, am I blowing it? What's the right way to deal with it? Like I said this morning, you can't evaluate your process from the inside. You don't know what this is leading to or where it's going. And so you can so easily get caught up. I'm not doing it right because this is happening. But if you really reflect what's needed, then there's other possibilities. The thought, am I doing it right? is just another thought. And it's one that often leads to more disturbance. Very different perspectives, very different approaches, like I said at the beginning. Ajahn Chah, the famous teaching that Jack shares, you know, he would contradict himself seemingly, and, and uh, you know, I think it was Jack who said, you know, why is this? You tell one person one thing, and then another person another thing, and you, you're always saying different things. And he says, well, it's like I, a road that I know well, and if I see somebody falling into the ditch on the left, I'll say, go right, go right. And if I see somebody else falling in a ditch on the right, I'll say, go left, go left. There's a wonderful book that Jack, put together called Living, now it's called Living Dharma. Living Buddhist Masters was the original title of 12 different masters, Burmese and Thai masters, each with a different approach to practice. And many of them kind of saying, this is the real way. They're all real ways. And so it's, it's very refreshing to see there's so many different ways Given that, who do you turn to? Who do you trust? Now, uh, 
Ajahn Chah, also a, another story by Ajahn Chah, as when Jack said, you know, you seem to not sometimes be so enlightened. You know, I, what if I... Well, yeah. I mean, he, he had some uh, chutzpah, as they say. And Ajahn, said, Ajahn Chah said, you know, it's a good thing you don't think I'm enlightened because otherwise you'd be looking for the Buddha outside yourself. Who do you trust? Well, I want to just put in a word for having some... Um, uh, a good working relationship with with a guide when you're in the middle of the process because sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees. So it, it's helpful if you do have some kind of a, a trust in, uh, in, a, in a teacher. But ultimately, it's not out there. But... Does it mean, oh, I should trust myself all the time? I think I might have said this in uh, the talk last week. You know, sometimes it's hard to trust ourselves. And the thought of trusting myself kind of frightened me because I didn't trust myself because I could tell myself a whole lot of different stories. This is what I really need. I think this is what I need. No, this is what I need. Come on, get with the program, you know. Rather than trusting in yourself as I started to talk about a bit last week, it's trusting in the awareness. Trusting in your awareness without identifying with it as being that clever part of you. You know, you listen to yourself anyway. All the thoughts that come through, usually we're listening. You might as well get skilled at listening at figure out which thoughts to listen to. Ajahn Chah would talk about this as the Buddha knowing or Mahabhuva, the one who knows, trusting in your Buddha knowing. That's taking refuge in the Buddha that's right inside. That's different from James knowing. Hey, pretty clever. It's not deceiving ourselves with pride or thinking that, you know, I'm going to figure this one out. This is called insight meditation, as you know. An insight can only happen when you're not really figuring it out. Because if it works out just the way you thought it would, it's not an insight. It's just, you know, showing you how clever you are and you end up patting yourself on the back and saying, yep, pretty sharp. But in order to have an experience of, ah, oh, wow, look at that. Aha. Uh-huh. So that there's a newness, a freshness. That means letting go of being the smart one and being open enough for the wisdom to just shine through. There's a a beautiful line in, uh, in the uh, Third Zen Patriarch. It says, stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. I love that line. Stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. Now, sure, the talking we've got pretty much down here, but it's not so easy to turn off the switch in our minds. It's just a matter of 
knowing that you don't have to pay attention to every thought that comes through because the wisdom is there ready to emerge if there's enough space to hear it. So there's a difference in thinking analytically and in listening more deeply, intuitively. That's what Ajahn Sumedho calls the shining through of the divine. I think I'll read this passage. He says, For a reflection on divinity, we have beautiful selfless qualities that can manifest through the human form when there's no, no self, when you're not caught in ignorance, when, there's all, when all that process of self-use ceases, then the divinity is obvious. Then kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, serenity of mind, the wisdom, not something that we have to get, but something that manifests through these forms. It's already here, but we aren't so good at listening. And I think of, or often when we get confused, we're not listening well. I think of this whole process of, of waking up as learning more and more how to listen skillfully to that knowing inside. And as the, the archetype for that, uh, perhaps you're familiar with Milarepa. You ever see the, the Tonkas, the Tibetan Tonkas, Milarepa? Milarepa always has his hand to his ear. You know, if you see a Tonka with that, that's Milarepa. Because he's listening to the songs of the Dharma, the 100,000 songs of Milarepa. And I think that we're all just learning more and more how to listen more deeply to the truth. That means quieting down. It means really going inside and getting to the more subtle places, not the, the obvious ones that are beating ourselves up or that are, that are trying to throw us off, but really learning how to listen. Because <clears throat> right inside is the Buddha. This is Michelangelo. I love this. When, when somebody lavished praise on, on him for um, his skill in creative, creating the amazingly exquisite statue, David, you know, just imagine. And this guy was saying, wow, so, so amazing how you could do that. And Michelangelo brushed aside the compliment saying, the man was already in the stone. I merely removed all the pieces of rock that kept him from being seen. It's a beautiful analogy for the Buddha right in you. There's obviously, how could there not be a Buddha in you? And seeing your Buddha nature nurturing that place of deep, perfect wisdom is what we're doing. All of this work here, more and more, seeing what's not Buddha and letting that emerge this is your true nature. Yoshal Kempo says, Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself, is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure, unalloyed, and flawless. 
Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There's no way to enlightenment other, by, other than by recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. How to do that? And that's actually what I'm doing, just as a little secret, uh, inside trade secret, uh, when I have the, the privilege of seeing people in interviews. Yeah, there's all the, the dukkha, the suffering, the, in Yiddish they say, mishagas, of, of somebody, you know, just all the, all the stuff the mind can go to. But um, I'm just seeing a Buddha in there and speaking to that being. And uh, we both sometimes can feel it. It's so much more obvious when you're not in the middle of it, when you're kind of outside and you see the sincerity that would bring somebody to such deep inquiry and the honesty and the authenticity and the 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 passion for waking up and for the truth, you know, it's like you'd have to be blind not to see it there. But it's a little bit harder from the inside. So how do we get in touch with that, with that natural state? Just a few pointers that I find helpful. First of all, um, when difficulties come up and there's real fear and there's real confusion and we might think, oh, this is, you know, my retreat is going, going downhill. This is really not good. You don't know. Like I was trying to communicate this morning, you don't know. Often, it's the very thing that gets you in touch with a wisdom and a confidence and a power that you wouldn't have accessed otherwise. When I look at my own practice, and maybe if you look back, whether it's formal practice or in your life, the hard stuff is probably where you've learned a lot of the lessons. Probably the most important lesson, oh, I can survive. I can get through it each time. Wow. We forget all the times we have when the next one comes up. Uh Uh-oh, this is the one I'm really going to get caught. You've always done it. But it calls forth in you a, a courage and a and a strength that you didn't know was there. I love telling this story about one of my heroes, uh, more inspiring beings on the planet, of um, Julia Butterfly Hill, who, if you're not familiar with her, she's, she's the, the archetypal tree hugger. She went up to the up the top of a of a tree, two hundred feet, feet up in in uh, in the redwoods in California, um, and stayed there for two years. And uh, I highly recommend 
listening to her talk or reading what she's written. And she went up in the, the worst winter on record in the last you know, few decades, the one that, was, that became known as El Nino, going up, no experience beforehand, going up for about what she thought were two or three weeks and not very well prepared at all. Right? She kind of had a whole lot of enthusiasm. Oh, I can do this. She didn't know that it was going to be a heavy-duty winter or how long she was going to stay, but the tree kept on calling her to stay. You're supposed to be here, and she stayed. And she, she talks about how this first storm hits, and it just, you know, she's on this platform. I don't know, it's like, uh, I don't know, five by seven or some ridiculous small little platform up in this tree. Um, and hanging on for dear life as the wind is, is blowing her off and the rain is pelting down on her. Uh, and uh, she just says, oh, God, give me the strength to, that I need for this ordeal. And she, she gets through the, the, the storm and then she says, please, God, give me the strength. I need to know I have the strength to get through this. Then another storm comes that's even worse than, than the first one. God, please let me know that I have the strength to survive. And then another storm. She keeps on coming, and she realizes every time she's asking to be shown that she has the strength, another storm comes, and she sees how strong she is. After a while, she, she kind of gets the idea, and she doesn't keep on asking for more. That's how it works. We, are, we have our ordeals, and we say, oh, my goodness, please give me the strength. And then you get through. Don't miss out on the fact that you have that strength. So that's how fear becomes one of greater and, and deeper trust and confidence. Some others about getting in touch with that that natural state of wisdom and of love. Getting out of the way by mindfulness. Okay? Now, mindfulness, not so much that you are not able to... How should I say this? Not just focusing on, okay... One way, freaking out, freaking out, freaking out. That's what's happening, freaking out, freaking out. How can I get out, freaking out? You know, that's, you know, it has its point. If you can notice, oh, freaking out, that's what's happening, fine. But if you're trying to figure your way out, look out. It doesn't work that way. So this is actually, it's, it's going back to the forgetfulness in attention, if I can find here it is. This is a, I don't think I read this here the other day, but I, I love this. A woman who was uh, on her first retreat and really spinning her wheels, trying to figure everything out. And I kept on telling her, you don't have to figure it out. And finally, the end of the retreat, she writes me this note. She gets it. 
She says, the one thing that's indelibly in my brain is finally getting you don't have to figure it out. That would never have registered in my mind as an option before. Yesterday, during walking meditation, there I was going round and round in my mind, trying to come up with an answer to some problem, getting more and more wound up. And then I remembered, you don't have to figure it out. And I asked myself, what do I know to be true right now? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and the placing of my foot on the ground. And the rest will sort itself out in its own time, I told myself. And I resumed my walking. What a revelation. If you are spinning your wheels around and around, let go of figuring anything out. Just know that you're taking a step. Know that you're alive on planet Earth. A very good way to just eliminate the whole wheel spinning. Another way, and this is, I think, the key, if I, if I could communicate to you anything about this. This is, this is a, a basic practice that I have, and it's along the lines of that learning to listen We have all kinds of thoughts that come through. And if you will give your attention, you'll notice that they feel differently or they sound differently from each other. There are some thoughts that come through with a finger wagging at us. Come on, get it together don't be such a wimp. Don't do this. Don't do that. Or you better. Or there's a kind of grasping, a kind of agitation that goes. And then there are other thoughts that come through that have a very different tone that just say, this feels right. Or mm, this doesn't feel right. That just knows. The one who knows That's a confirmation, I think. What does it sound to you? In fact, another audience participation. What What does the voice sound to you when you really know? Think of a good decision that you've that you've made. You know, hmm. Time to sit. Hmm. Time to have a cup of tea. Hmm. Time to change my job, whatever it is. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't say I, I, that when I was thinking about being out in the real world. Don't make that decision right here, please. <laughs> Although, if it's really true, maybe you'll know it. Okay, when you have that connection, what is what does it sound? What does it sound like inside? Anybody? Yeah. Ah, gentle and encouraging. Beautiful. Any anything else? There's lots of different ways that it can sound. Or lots of different facets. Spacious. Great. Yeah. What else? Anything? Clear as a bell. Just snow. Soft. Okay. Anybody else? This is not a 
a quiz. It's just the, we, we hear it. And all of those might be, we, we can tune into different aspects. It's the same energy. Gentle, spacious, yeah. No words, just an intuitive, deep knowing. Okay. Anybody else? Okay, that's probably enough. Now for you to explore for yourself. So that's one area, to really learn to listen to the tone. Another is to mm, feel it in your body. When you are agitated, when you are disturbed, when you're really spinning your wheels, how does it feel in your body? Anyone? Stiff? Stiff? Oh, stuck. Uh huh. What else? Stuck? Tight. Yeah. Are you saying contract, contracted? Just. What's the right answer here? Okay, we all know that feeling. When it's the voice, when it's your Buddha knowing, when you just know, how does it feel? There's lots of different flavors for it to feel. Anyone? Easy? Mm hmm. Good. What what's what does it feel like viscerally in the body? Calmness, okay. Calmness and precision or precision just clarity right right on uh is that what you mean? Uh huh. Relaxed and clear. Okay. How else? Anyone else? How does it feel in your body? Probably the people who haven't spoken don't want to speak, and the people who have don't want to hog. But uh, if you, it's okay if you've already spoken. Uh, how does it feel for you? Feels right. What about it feels right? How do you know it feels right? What what inside lets you know that it feels right? Huh? A fullness. Okay, great. I'll just add a few. Yeah. Say again. Harmony. Okay. There's an alignment. There's a fullness. There's a, an ease, a calm, a rightness. Probably a feeling of support, a kindness to it. And in the body, there's a relaxation and at the same time, a groundedness. Really learning to listen to your body and learning to listen to your mind. That's a key. Be present for the energy that, that it feels because there's a wholesomeness, a well-being when you're in touch with that Buddha knowing. And if you didn't do anything else, then just refined your attention so you knew that ring of truth so that you could clearly notice, oh, this, it can be exactly the same message that comes in a finger wag 
or that comes from the deepest wisdom. So it's not necessarily the content. It's kind of getting in touch with that deeper place that knows. So to be very present, feeling its energy, and letting yourself enjoy the wholesomeness of it. But you got to be careful because in just one moment it can it can turn into something else. So you have to keep your sense of humor in this and not think, aha, I know, I know, because in one moment it can turn, you know. So you have to keep on listening and feeling, is this okay? I remember on one, one retreat I was, I was doing this practice. Um, I, I'd been given an interview. Just um, notice any sense of self being created. You know? It was really a cool kind of practice. Mm, okay, no, oh yeah. Just It was so freeing when there wasn't that identification with the process. And as I was doing walking meditation, if you've sat at IMS, you know the, the bowling alley downstairs, I, it was one of my favorite places to, to walk, and I'd be doing walking meditation. There was this one meditation where this, um, as I'm walking, this guy who I knew from the outside who was kind of like a, a, a bull in the china shop kind of yogi, comes through and he has this big book and he's as he's walking he's writing down his deep what I thought his deep meditation experiences you know I had to work with this guy anyway in my mind and the thought comes to me well I certainly have a lot less sense of self than he has you know (laughs) whoops (laughs) In just a moment, it can creep around. So you have to really keep on looking and feeling and noticing, oh, what, is it, what does it feel like to be truly spacious, to really let go, to not think that you know it all, but realize that it's something deeper than your knowing. It's the Buddha in you knowing. So the wisdom is right inside it's right inside. It's not just out there. It's not 20 lifetimes from now that you'll get in touch with it. It takes courage to look deeply. And sometimes it seems when you open up, it's like Pandora's box and all the stuff, all the disturbances, everything is coming out. And you say, oh no, gosh, I don't want to go there. But underneath all of that is a very deep wisdom that we can trust more and more as we connect with it, whether you call it the kingdom of God or Kuan Yin or your Buddha knowing or your true nature. And just as you you get a glimpse of it, more and more you are able to connect with it and know it. So I'll close with... I think I'll close with this from the Buddha. Therefore, one of his last teachings, be lamps unto yourselves. Be a refuge to yourselves. Betake betake yourselves to no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone besides yourselves. 
and those who either now or after I'm dead shall be a lamp unto themselves, shall be take to themselves no external refuge, but hold fast to the truth is their lamp, and hold fast to the truth is their refuge, shall not look for refuge to anyone besides themselves. It is they who shall reach the very topmost height, and they must be anxious to learn. So, let's sit for a moment. Know the Buddha right inside of you. He or she is right there waiting to be heard. So we uh, close with the uh, reflections on sharing of blessings. Feel your blessings as you share them. You know, it makes it a whole lot more potent to an act of generosity, you know, rather than just reading the words just feel how blessed we all are and share it with everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.